Hey y'all, before we dive into this week's episode, I want to give a quick warning that the conversation deals with domestic abuse and includes depictions of violence. It took me a month and a half more, um, but during that month and a half, I started telling people. I started asking people, in my Uber drivers, like random people, as I started, you know, leaving him more and more, being like, hey, have you heard of this happening? And, you know, what would you do in this situation? Like all hypotheticals, because I didn't have any friends there. So these were just random people I was asking. And they started telling me, yeah, I've heard of that. It's not okay. Oh, my best friend that happened to her, she called this women's shelter and they were able to help her. So I ended up calling women's shelter, making like a exit strategy with them. Then I, yeah, one day I actually just left the house. I like packed up all my stuff. That's what they say to do to like pack up all your stuff so that when there's a a window for you to leave, when they're not there, you just run out and leave. And so that's what I ended up doing. Hello there, I'm Yonka Kamara. Welcome to Kume Turning Point Diaries, where we share stories of critical moments in our personal and professional lives. In this week's episode, our guest, Anthea Tabor, tells a cautionary tale of love and manipulation. What began as a fun and exhilarating courtship quickly descended into something unloving and dangerous. She walks us from the moment her ex-boyfriend's mask slipped and she saw and felt the violence within him to the day she broke free from the cycle of abuse. Anthea is a co-founder and resident mind guide at We Are Warriors, an interactive platform for women focusing on personal development and community connection. Her work and walk is a powerful testimony of freedom. Hello, Anthea. Welcome to Kume Turning Point Diaries. I'm so excited to have you. You look so beautiful. How are you? Oh, thank you so much for having me. I am well, thank you. Um, You're in Bali, as I know. How is that? It's beautiful. Today was a little bit rainy, actually, but the weather here every day is beautiful. There's always sun. And today I actually went free diving um, and dove with manta rays. So it was an incredible day. Wow. How long have you been in in Bali now? I've been here for a year and two months. So the whole pandemic, you have been away from the United States. Yes. And it's been such an alternative reality over here. There was never a shutdown. Masks you only have to wear when you're on the road. Restaurants never closed. There are still gatherings happening with hundreds of people. So yeah, I really have no idea what the rest of the world has been experiencing. And what brought you to Bali? Okay, so here we're starting to get into the critical moments, I think. Um, yeah, so I first came to Bali in 2018 um, after I would made enough progress in some healing recovery that I was doing. I after I graduated college, I actually had to leave a semester early because I had really bad um, post-traumatic stress disorder and I couldn't be alone. I like I couldn't eat alone. I couldn't be alone. I was struggling with flashbacks and um, like paranoia and just kind of thinking that everybody was like out to get me. And so I had to go back home, spent a year with my family and about six months into my healing journey, I learned about this place called Bali and I saw photos of the waterfalls and the rainforest. And I was like, okay, this is my goal. I want to, you know, get through my therapy and my treatment to the point where I can travel on my own. And my, my reward for that was kind of going to Bali. Um, so that's how I came here the first time. And so, so this is your second time 
in yes. Bali? Yeah. First time I just came for one month, uh, from July to August. And then now I, I've been here for a year since 29, 2020. So can you take us back to what really led you to travel to Bali? Yeah. So there were a couple of things. Um, as you know, with trauma, there's a couple different types. There's like trauma from one event. And then there's something called complex trauma, which is experiencing the same sort of traumatic event over and over. And so what my complex trauma was, is that I had been in, uh, in an abusive relationship for a, just over a year um, with an individual who had a lot of violence inside themselves. And I was very young. I was 20 at the time. I was away from my family. I didn't really have a friend group or a support system where I was because I, I went to Occidental College, just like you, um, in Los Angeles. And my family lived in Connecticut. So I was sort of in this place of being very like alone, isolated, I was insecure. And I think those are kind of prime conditions to kind of get stuck with an individual like the one that I found myself with. How did you meet this individual? I met him. He reached out to me on um, Instagram because he was looking for someone to do his communications for his business. And at the time I was getting into copywriting, I um, was doing some writing for like Forbes and Entrepreneur as a ghostwriter, not as myself. Um, and yeah, it's not really allowed actually to do that, but there's lots of people doing it. Um, and so he was kind of impressed by that. And then he, he asked to have a meeting. And I remember the first night I met him, it was in his college, uh, dorm room. He was part of a fraternity. And I remember I walked in there and he was just so charming and, um, was like complimenting me a lot and was, he was the first person that really made me feel like, wow, somebody sees something in me um, because I, I've always struggled with kind of self-worth because my dad growing up was very hard on me and he's an amazing, beautiful man, but he just didn't really know how to like motivate a young woman when in the way that I needed to be motivated anyways. Um, so yeah, this person was the first person that made me feel like I had a lot of talent and potential. And so we started working together, but then it very quickly became kind of like a romantic relationship. There was something that I've, I've read about now. It's called love bombing. So it's in these relationships that often turn very violent. There's like a early period of like the honeymoon phase where they're just overly being overly loving, like agreeing with everything you say, encouraging you, wanting to get close to all your friends, your family to really gain a lot of your trust. And he did that to like an overwhelming degree. Like I remember he flew us to meet my parents in the first month that I met him, um, just like moved really fast. Did you at any point express anything to your parents when you talked to them? Did they observe something about him when you guys flew out to visit them? Um, that's a really good question. I I'm thinking back and one of the things that made it so hard is that he kind of met all my close friends and my parents very early. So they saw this side of him that it's hard. I mean, I still... I still find myself being tricked by people who remind me of him because in the first maybe like hour or two hours or even three hours you meet them, you don't necessarily catch on to something being off. And that was very much how he interacted with people who knew me. It was very brief. It wasn't for a long amount of time. So everybody thought that I was really happy and that I was in a really good situation. Um, but there, I did start to get messages um, from a few friends being like, Hey, you know, we don't like that. He talks to you this way or, he started putting limitations on who I could talk to and when. And so they, people started to notice I was less 
present in their life. And I started acting a lot less like myself. And so people, I did have a couple people be like, Hey, is everything okay? But this was all before the violence started. And so my response was always, yeah, I'm fine. I'm great. I'm super happy. I'm super in love. Um, and then once the violence started, it was really hard for me. It took me about six months actually to tell my mom some of the things that were going on. Uh, Cause I just didn't think anyone was going to believe me because some of the things that I was experiences I, that I was experiencing, I had never even heard of before or, or seen um, going on. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I want to kind of just dig deeper into like what people were saying. Cause you said, you know, it was very early on, but uh, as things went on, people started to say things to you and because of how he was talking to you, what were the kinds of things he was talking to you before he became violent? physically violent. The first thing I remember happening was these nicknames. He, he gave me some really not nice nicknames. Um, like, you know, nicknames, like, um, he used to call me like fat whale. So horrible when I say it, now. I'm like, what the heck? But yeah, he used to, you know, kind of play on that. And I've always been like more on the voluptuous side, but I never was, I never thought that was a bad thing because my mom, she's like the queen of body positivity. So I was always, you know, when he started saying those things to me, I was kind of just like, you know, F you like what I like my body. So that one didn't affect me so much, but there were a couple other ones um, that were more negative. And I remember I told my parents about it one time and they were like, that's not really normal for someone to be calling someone they love those things. And he'll call you then public as well, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I remember there was one night, I mean, he used to get so upset when I would talk to other men. That was like a big no. Like I couldn't even look, even if they were someone like one of his friends, I couldn't look at them. I couldn't sit next to them. I had to sit with my legs crossed and my arms crossed. Like there were all of these rules that I had to follow when I was in the company of other men. And I remember one time one of his friends, you know, saw how controlling he was being and he had taken my phone and was like yelling at me in the back of a car. And he just, he came up to me and he was just like, Hey, Anthony, I just want you to know this isn't I don't think this is okay, an okay way for him to treat you. And he was like, I have a sister. And, you know, if someone was treating my sister this way, I wouldn't be okay with it. And that person really helped, you know, change my mind about what was happening. Because I also thought I deserved a lot of it, right? Because my self-esteem was so low. So I had a really low self-worth and I didn't think I deserved to be treated well. So I was kind of accepting the way he was treating me because it was confirming that belief that I had. Was there a point where you know, looking back now where you're like, you saw the violence, but you ignored it. There was one night after we had moved in together, I moved in with him in the first three months, which I will never do that again. That was like a lesson learned. Um, But there was one night where I had like ordered dinner from a male waiter. And like, I'd done that before. There'd never been an issue. But when we got back to our apartment, he started going off about, oh, you know, were you interested in him? You were looking at him kind of funny. And, and I was like, no, what are you talking about? It was, he was just the waiter. And then from there, he started like, kind of like throwing me around the apartment. He like pushed me up against a wall pretty hard. I hit my head. He just started kind of like attacking me over that. And that was the first night where I was like, okay, this is weird. I've never experienced this before. But what I did because I was alone is I called his parents because he was acting like really bizarre and was threatening to like kill me. And, you know, this was like, I'd never seen him like this, even a tiny bit. So I was just like, if maybe he's having some sort of a psychological, you know, problem and I should call his parents. 
So his parents ended up coming and just kind of telling me that I had, you know, done something wrong and that I, I shouldn't talk to men anymore when I'm with him because it, it really upsets him, but that he really loves me and they love me and, you know, that this wouldn't happen again sort of thing. So it, it was almost like they had seen him act this way before. Um, but I guess for them, it was normal. And so they kind of normalized it to me. And then from that day forward, it was just every other day was really was was dangerous I just want to first of all just thank you so much for just opening up about this I know it may not be easy to talk about it um, but I appreciate you sharing you mentioned that you were in this relationship for a year over a year right you endured this violence for over a year at what point in the relationship did you first know in your heart that like I need to get out and then also the moment that you actually had the strength to like leave. Mm, I love that question. Thank you for asking it in such an empowering way. Um, the first moment I had that this was wrong was actually that first night that he had sort of this episode. I think it was like a, what do they call it? Like a psychotic episode. I think that's what was happening with him. He would kind of get triggered by little things and then he would really just kind of dissociate and he wouldn't even remember the next day what had happened the night before. Um, so the first night that that happened, that was like three months into it. I remember having this thought and I wrote down actually, because I'm a huge journaler and I have all my journal entries from that time. I wrote down, okay, I think there might be something wrong here. Maybe I should ask someone about this, but then I never did. I think it was six months after that, that I again started having thoughts of, you know, I almost died a couple of times with him. There were a couple really bad, really dangerous nights. Um, and that's sort of when I started being like, okay, I think I really need to leave. And that I also, um, I very seriously um, contemplated suicide twice, actually, because I was experiencing um, really just intense sexual violence that I, sexual violence kind of impacts you in a way that just makes you want to not exist anymore, because you can't even think about telling somebody, like, in my head, I was like, okay, I have to tell my mom. And then I was think, how am I going to tell my mom this is happening? Like, how, is she, she's, is she even going to believe me? Um, so it was sort of those thoughts. Like I went from prior to meeting him, loving life, you know, being very inspired, loving where my college, being very engaged in my classes. And I just saw how much of a opposite I was to that. I tolerated a lot because I sort of started you normalize violence. It's really easy to normalize it, especially when you're the one experiencing it. And you also learn how to kind of manage the person you're with. So I started getting really good at not making him as upset most of the time. Still, I would mess up and there'd be like huge, huge explosions of it. But there started to be a little bit less actually as it went on um, because you learn about the person and you learn how to, it's like operant conditioning, you know, like I remember feeling like a dog, actually, like I was learning, he would like, you know, smack me every time I did this. So I would stop doing that. And then I'd stop getting smacked. But then there'd be like another thing. So it was definitely a process. Um, and I just wish I wish I had known about this type of relationship, because I did spot it like as early as three months being like, is this normal? Should I tell someone about this? And I never did. And it took me another maybe 10 months to get out of it. You've mentioned now this idea of not anyone believing you. Do you recall ever having an experience with your parents where they did not validate an experience of yours um, that made you think 
that if I were to come forward with this particular um, experience, they would not um, believe me? Or was it just kind of something that was just in your head, you know, where you felt like he's so kind, everybody thinks he's great. They could not possibly see this side of him. It was some of that, what you just said of, of fearing like disbelief. Um, but it was more actually, I'll, I'll bring up my dad again here. Growing up, if we ever made a mistake, it was very much, you know, he would call us stupid or a moron or like an idiot. Just he would get upset that we hadn't thought or known better. Right. And when you're a kid, like you, you're learning. And he that was very much a reflection of how his parents were on him. They were so hard on him and not very loving. And so he was doing the best that he knew how to. But I was really afraid of like my dad finding out because I didn't want I feared like his judgment and him not accepting me or. I think I was also afraid that he would just be like, OK, well, you're on your own now. Like, what do you want us to do? I was afraid that he wouldn't help. And that actually was confirmed a few times during the relationship because uh, my ex got so controlling that like Christmas came around and he was like, you can't spend Christmas with your family. And I was like, OK. So then I had to tell my family that and they ended up coming out to California for spring break. And my ex told me that I was not allowed to go and see them. And I convinced him to say that we could go if he could come with me. And then when I told my dad that I said, Hey, yeah, I'd love to meet up with you, but I'm going to bring my ex along. He said, Nope, either you come just you or you're not invited basically. And so that was a moment of me just feeling kind of like pushed out of my family because of this other person I was with and they had no idea what I was going through. And I wanted to get close to them so that I could tell them what was going on because I was never alone. He was with me 24 seven, literally he used to like walk me to my class at Oxy, sit outside the room and then walk me back into his car. I was never alone. So I couldn't really tell someone what was happening. And I just remember this, having this huge sinking feeling when my dad, and I wasn't surprised, like my dad would say something like that. And it kind of confirmed this fear that I couldn't tell them what was going on because I wouldn't maybe be supported. In your opinion, why do you think your parents, your father in particular, said that he didn't want your ex to join you, um, to join you and them when they visited California for the, the spring break? a great question. At the time when this was actually happening, I had the feeling it was because he did not respect the person I was with. He, it's not somebody he wanted to spend time with. I also hadn't seen them in about six months. So I understood that they just wanted to see me like alone. Um, after I asked my dad about it, he was trying to make a really clear statement to me that I was in a, I was in a bad situation by, by being so stern, almost like you give a child like a consequence, you know? So he was trying to be like, you're not going to have your family, you know, if you're going to have this person and hoping this was his process. He told me this because we ended up going to therapy together, hoping that that would, you know, trigger something in my brain to be like, Whoa, you know, my dad is my, both my parents are telling me I can't come to the family trip if I bring this person with me. Um, but they just didn't understand, they had no idea the extent to what was going on. And that, that was really kind of, in a way, me asking to come with him was me trying to ask for help, like ask for their help. Like I was so desperate. I was like begging them basically. And my dad was just like, no. So 
I think he was trying to do it in my best interest. And this is kind of my dad's style with parenting was so harsh and like painful. But I, I understand kind of why he was that way, because in every other situation other than this one, even when he really put his foot down, it ended up helping me in a big way. But in this case, it was it was really not the right, not the right thing. Um, yeah, but I've I like I said, I did go to therapy with him and it really helped helped me uh, like forgive him and understand where he was coming from because they were just scared also. They were scared and they, yeah, they just didn't know what to do. Did you think your dad saw something in him that reminded him of himself? For sure. Like, even though he didn't know the the extent of the violence? Yeah. I mean, I think there must have been some degree of, of that recognition. And that's why there was that rejection. But I also think for me, it was more on the other side. Like, this person reminded me so much of my dad. And my dad, your dad is like the first person that you learn from love about you know especially when it comes to another man so it was actually more on my side of me just associating my ex with my dad in a lot of ways and but the thing is my dad was my dad right sometimes parents they are drastic because they really do have the best interests of their kids in mind whereas my ex he was just violent and careless and reckless and didn't really actually care about me um so I just want to make that like distinction um and I also want to say that you know, when my dad, when, when everything came out and when I had to come home and like the police got involved towards the end and I really had to tell my parents everything that happened, my dad was so shocked that we didn't talk for like a week. Like he couldn't even look at me. And that's sort of why we started therapy because I was at a point where I just, you know, he couldn't talk to me. And I took that as a, I was just frustrated with that. And I told him, I was like, I, I can't talk. I will never talk to you again if we can't talk about this. And so it was like the opposite. I was afraid of him not being supportive. And he was so supportive in the end and just so shocked as to what was going on. And he saw the role that he played and he apologized and really took responsibility for it. And that was, I mean, I'm so close with him now. So close. Like I am almost grateful that this happened because I have like a new dad. Like I had the dad that I always dreamed of having when I was young. I'm happy that you now have this relationship with your father. So then what was the outcome of that decision when your dad said it's either you just by yourself or not at all? Um, the outcome was that I, we didn't go and it was horrible. I remember feeling like my heart just like shattered into a million pieces. Cause I couldn't see my mom. I couldn't see my sister. Couldn't see my aunt, my grandmother. And my grandmother was like very old at this point. And, you know, we didn't know how much longer she was going to live. And it was just the most pain I think I'd ever felt even worse than the violence I was experiencing. Cause it was just this feeling of my family being so close and yet I couldn't like get to them. Um, and also soon after that, he ended up taking my phone, my computer, every, I mean, everything was gone. I literally, it was just him and his parents. I could, I had no contact for about five months with anybody. Um, and during this time, my parents started, they finally realized something was very wrong. And I didn't know this, but they were talking to a lot of their friends back home, even the police, like trying to figure out what to do, but they couldn't even reach me. They had no idea where I was, what I was doing, if I was even alive. Like when I talked to them after, after I came home, like their fears were, 
you know, extreme, like they thought I was locked up somewhere. And so they didn't want to, you know, say the wrong thing because they were worried something would happen. And we had to like speak in this weird code towards the end because I, I eventually, you know, started saying, this isn't okay. I need to be able to talk to my parents. And slowly I got these little uh, freedoms back, but we had to be so careful. At what moment were you able to tell your parents, even in code, like about what you were experiencing? So I created a secret email and this is, by the way, a, a sign, because I write a lot about this now in my reflections, like signs to know that you're in a situation that's not good. If you ever have to create a secret anything or hide anything from the person you're with, that is like a really strong red flag indicator that there's danger and you know, you're just in a dangerous situation. Um, so I created a secret email and I just sent my mom this like novel one day of everything that he was doing. But in that, there were so many. Um, excuses and justifications for why he was doing that. So I was sharing, but I was also saying, but mom, he's gone through this. So that's why he's this way. And you know, dad was like this and he treats you the same way. So I think it's okay. Uh, So there was just a lot of, you know, confusion of how wrong what was happening was happening. Uh, And so that was the first time. And then we had a bunch of correspondences back and forth on that email And this was all through like on his phone, I would log into the secret email, then have to log out, then like clear all the history. And, you know, it's so careful. And he never found out about it, actually, to this day has no idea about it. Um, But my mom has everything saved. So that's very, that was very interesting for us to sort of go back through that together. I still want you to really talk more about like, the moment that you were finally able to to be free, to get out of this situation and what it has meant for you going forward. Okay, so the moment, um, so I remember that after that period of not being able to communicate with my family or my friends, I sort of sat down with my ex and his parents and said, I think this is really not okay. I just said I was very concerned about how I was being treated and I didn't want to like get anyone in trouble. This is how I said it sort of as like a weird kind of threat that I'd been reading up about people like my ex and what was going on just, you know, wasn't okay. And so they said, okay, well, you can, you can go visit your family kind of like appeasing me, but also still making it very clear that I had to come back to them. And I, you know, if I did anything wrong, that there were going to be big consequences. They were always threatening me. Like, to destroy me, to kill me, to destroy my family, all, all three of them. Wow. Um, and I didn't know, like, because of some of the things I'd experienced, I didn't doubt that they would do that. And that's a reason a lot of people stay in these relationships. It's fear of what's going to happen when you leave, because you get used, as I said, being able to control what happens kind of in the situation so that you don't, you don't actually want to leave it because you think it might be worse. Um, So I went home for five days. I think five days he came with me for the first two. And then I had three days alone. And um, I reconnected with two of my high school friends who I hadn't seen in like a year and a half. And I just saw my family. I saw how much they missed me, how concerned they were. My mom took me to Kripalu, which is um, this healing center in the like Catskill Mountains. And we went to this 
I think it was an AA meeting actually, but it, they, it, they were talking about addiction and, you know, like freeing yourself from addiction. And, and I was like addicted in a way to the violence in the relationship. Like there is this cycle of kind of addiction that's very similar to something like drugs where you, you experience the violence, but then when you're through it and you get the love, it's like a crazy feeling of relief, like, like you're high almost. So I was like in that cycle and she was talking about alcohol, but I was like making all these comparisons to what I was going through. And that was just a total coincidence that that happened. Um, but then when I went back after that, I sort of was equipped with some new knowledge and understanding of what my situation was. And it was still a month and a half more, it took me a month and a half more. Um, but during that month and a half, I started telling people, I started asking people in my Uber drivers, like random people, as I started, you know, leaving him more and more being like, Hey, have you heard of this happening? And, um, you know, what would you do in this situation? Like all hypotheticals. Cause I didn't have any friends there. So these were just random people I was asking and they started telling me, yeah, I've heard of that. It's not okay. Oh, my best friend that happened to her. She called this women's shelter and they were able to help her. So I ended up calling women's shelter, making like a exit strategy with them. And, um, then I, yeah, one day I actually just left the house. I like packed up all my stuff. That's what they say to do to like pack up all your stuff so that when there's a a window for you to leave, when they're not there, you just run out and leave. And so that's what I ended up doing. And I, I'll never forget. I just, I just ran back to Occidental and like locked myself in my room and I didn't leave my room for about four days, like literally did not leave my room. I was so scared. And I lost a lot in that. Also in leaving that way, I've left my passport, my computer, my phone, my camera, my go, I mean, everything he still has. So I had nothing like really nothing. So I had to buy a phone and then I had to get a computer and just really start over again. And my mom came out and lived with me for my last two weeks of my first semester, senior year in my dorm room. We slept in my twin bed together. Um, and everyone knew at my school that something was wrong. Like the, president of Occidental. He's a very close, uh, like mentor of mine for all four years that I was there, uh, Jonathan beach. And he sent me an email, like, I'm so glad, you know, I hear you're back on campus. And my teachers were all super concerned because I had basically started missing a lot of class at that point, but I always have gotten A's. So there's, you know, I've never had issues with that. Um, but they're like, everybody knew something was kind of off, but nobody knew what to do. And that is also, I think, very representative of this, this truth about humanity, like abusive relationships are everywhere, like one in three women and one in four men before the age of 24 are in a a similar situation to me, and nobody really knows what to do. Um, So yeah, but that was the moment. It was the day I called the shelter, I made the plan with them. Um, I just got a couple, like random stories from strangers who really helped. Um, And then yeah, the courage basically is you, if you are able to, to, to leave, it's incredibly empowering. Like I look back on that day and I'm just like, wow, I can't believe I did that, you know, basically alone. Um, so I'm happy. I'm proud of myself that I was able to do that. That's a moment that actually gives me a lot of strength now. I'm so proud of you that you're here, you know, um, cause I know a lot of women don't always make it out, you know, and, 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 either they make it out and they're just not okay, you know, but for you, I I can't say whether or not you're okay or not, but for you to be in a place where you can talk about it. You mentioned that your mom took you to this 
somewhat of a, like an AA meeting. Has she, has she opened up that that was intentional or was that just a coincidence that she happened to take you? Yeah. So this is a great question. And, um, my mom said that she took me there because she went through something similar. So my mom experienced a lot of sexual abuse from her dad from a really young age, from like three years old to about seven or eight years old. And that, you know, child sexual, sexual abuse manifests in a lot of different ways. So for her, she had eating disorders. She, um, would have panic attacks a lot. Um, I was just into some self-destructing, like unhealthy relationships as well. And then in her like mid twenties, she finally started therapy and realized it was because all of this trauma that she experienced. So she sort of had an idea of what I might be experiencing and just wanted to take me to a safe place where I could be surrounded by so many other people who were going through the same thing. So I didn't feel like alone in my experience. I think when it comes to any kind of trauma, maybe especially relationships where there's violence, you feel like you're the only one in the world that it's happening to. Like you really truly believe that. And that's why my mom wanted to take me there. And the, the AA style meeting, I think that was just on the schedule for the day, but she took me to that healing center for a very specific reason. Like we did dancing, we did yoga. Um, we were just eating really healthy foods. We did this walk outside this guided like meditation walk. And it was the first time that I could actually feel my body because when you experience violence, you just numb. everything is numb. And I just remember feeling like, so not myself and like afraid, actually afraid of the, of the person I was with. Um, but it's only because I had to compare it with that safe space, which I had forgotten what it felt like to feel safe and like loved. So yeah, she definitely knew that that's what I needed, I think. That's amazing that she she did that, you know, because that connection was really um, pivotal in you actually being able to leave that place. In passing, you've mentioned journaling, right? How you now, you have all these journal entries of that time. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, why you felt safe journaling? If like everything else was you know, accessible to him. <laughs> like I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like, she's writing everything down, but he has her phone, he has her computer and all of these type of stuff. So journaling, um, how, why you felt safe journaling, but also what journaling um, did for you, you know, or how you got into journaling in the first place. So I've been journaling since I was about seven years old. I just, my mom said it was the first thing that I showed interest in. Like I was always wanting to buy journals and I would just write you know, I used to get up really early, like five in the morning and like sit outside and just listen to the birds and like write how I was feeling and write poems. And I've just, to this day, I journal like throughout the day of what's going on. And so that was something that I was already doing when I, when I met my ex. And, um, at the time I was using this journal called Penzu, which is like an online locked journal. So it's very like secure. You have to you change the password a lot and you log in, you write something and then it automatically logs you out. And that's just what I was doing at the time. Um, and so that's sort of why I felt safe doing it because I knew that he wouldn't see it. So it wasn't a physical journal. You know? Yeah, but I mean, I also had physical journals, but um, yeah, towards the end, well, towards, I mean, four months into the relationship, I, I couldn't have anything, you know, physical or he would see it. Um, but also even if I did have a journal, I don't think he would have cared. Like he was not really that interested in what I was doing in things that didn't involve him. 
and most things I did did involve him. So, um, but yeah, the journaling, like it was towards the end, I started realizing how I wasn't writing anymore. And he actually told me at one point that I wasn't allowed to want to be a writer anymore. Like that, I, that, that I wasn't, it wasn't an option. And that I remember like really breaking my heart because that's always what I've loved to do. And so journaling in that way, I think it really brought me back to myself because I realized that that's something I needed. And if I was with somebody who was like denying me of the one thing that made me really connect to myself, um, that that was a big issue. I know that now you are, you're doing a lot of writing and you're leading and inspiring so many women. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I actually wanted to have you on the, on the podcast, because um, I know you through some familial friendly relationship connections and also having gone to Oxy, we didn't attend at the same time, but um, we share that connection. Uh, but I remember at one point seeing a lot of your um, social media posts about healing and, you know, and just traumatic things. And um, I had no idea what was up, but I was like, something must have happened, right? It's almost like that turning point, you know, like when somebody starts changing, right? You know, there's always a story behind this, this change. And one thing I saw that was like, you know, now makes sense to me, but was like, this love of butterflies and wings, right? Um, and and makes me think that I'm I'm wondering if that in some way is a metaphor for you, right? The the struggle that a butter to become a butterfly is somewhat of a struggle. Can you can you talk about that? Like your your love for this wings and things that fly. Yes. Oh my gosh, I do. I <clears throat> so this is actually a funny story when right after I left, like the week after I left my ex, my mom flew out and we were walking in Santa Monica on the pier. And there was this little booth selling these like fairy butterfly wings. And she sort of saw me looking at them. And I guess I was smiling because as a kid, like I loved fairies. I, the one thing I wanted more than anything was to like have a pair of wings. I used to like wish for it all the time. And so she was like, she's like, Anthea, let's go try on a pair of those wings. And I was like, okay. I was kind of nervous, but I did it. And I ended up putting them on and just feeling like a new person in that moment. Like I just was free of my past. And I, that was very hard at that point because the PTSD was so intense. But when I put those wings on, it was like, I just had this shield of like freedom and protection. And so we ended up buying a pair and I started wearing them everywhere, like everywhere to the gas station, to the grocery store. I just, I loved how they made me feel. And I also assumed because I was afraid at this time of um, like struggling with a lot of paranoia and hypervigilance. I was like, no one's going to mess with me if I'm wearing these wings. Cause they're just going to think I'm weird. <laughs> so um, yeah, it does definitely represent freedom for me. And also just, I think we forget that we all have these metaphorical wings on our backs that can help us fly away from situations that are, that are not, uh, safe for us. And we forget that because of usually the person on the other side, making you feel unsafe has a lot of control, but we always have these wings that are there, like in the last minute situation, if we need them. And so since, since realizing that I've, I've just changed, like the way I live my life is so different. Like I just, if I see danger, I notice it. And then I like fly away to, you know, safety or something, something different. So yeah. And also the idea of metamorphosis, like you said, butterflies, like they are in a cocoon and then slowly they, they hatch into a butterfly. And that, that sort of is like a metaphor for the healing process. 
Um, another thing I wanted to kind of touch on because you you kind of said this in passing as well about not really having this support, supportive groups of friends while you were in college and you were going through this. Has that shifted in the way you think about people and how, you know what I mean? Like, is there, is, do you now have an, are, are you now intentional about creating a group of people around you that you know have, have your back? Yes. And I just want to say, this is a beautiful question. Thank you for asking it. Um, I think human connection is the reason that we exist. And it's a reason why a lot of us survive the things that we do. We need to be connected to people because of it. Being connected to people helps us stay connected to ourselves. And as a woman, as you know, there's a lot of competition when it comes to women at judging, you know, excluding people from the group. And that's, that's been my experience with women ever since high school. Um, just not being included, not feeling like girls wanted to be friends with me. Um, and so that community is something that I was missing like desperately for my life. And it's kind of led me into what I do now, which is I help run um, an online community of women from all over the world um, it's called We Are Warriors. And it's it's just a place where we celebrate being sisters, basically. So we do exactly what you said. We're a community for each other. If we go through something, we share it. Like, for instance, if you have a, we've had a couple of girls actually come forward and say, hey, I'm, I'm in a situation with, with a guy. This happened. Is it normal? And it just gives us a chance to speak on behalf of our own experiences, not telling the person what to do, just sharing. This is my experience. This is what I did. This is what helped me. And just provide that that community support, which mostly is help. I think that's why we are in communities. It's, it's all, of course, to celebrate what we love and our passions, but it's also to be there to help each other and to be able to receive help and give help, um, I think is another main reason why a lot of people do what they do. Um, so it is something I'm always thinking about. If I ever meet another woman or if I ever see another woman sitting alone, I always go up to her and I just say hi. It's not like I'm going up and being like, hey, you know, do you need help? I just say, hey, you know, what? what's your name? Where are you from? Just letting them know that I see them. Because even that so simple can change somebody's whole life. Like that's my one of my best friends, Chloe. That's what she did for me. She she was the first girl, like as I was exiting my relationship in the last couple of months to see me and be like, hey, are you, you know, are you okay? Like you you seem like a little bit sad, you know, do you want to hang out? Here's my number. And she followed up with me and she was a total stranger. Like, I mean, no reason to do this. Um, and she's one of my closest friends now because she just saw me in a time when I couldn't even see myself. And yeah, I think that's another reason community is so important. They can be like a good mirror for you. Yeah. I, I, I totally, I totally agree. I, um, I now want to talk more about what you're doing, right? You j- just mentioned about we are warriors. So what led you to that work? And um, is that work that you started before you went to Bali or is that work that you you began while you were in Bali? So this is one of my favorite stories to tell because it is so um, serendipitous and very in the Bali spirit of life, of just things falling into line at the right time and right place. The So as I said, my goal with my recovery was to be able to go on a trip alone. I chose Bali. And while I was here, I actually did a poetry retreat in the jungle for five days. And when I was there, I met this um, 
woman who I followed on Instagram. Her name was Alexis Wren. And she um, is a big Instagram kind of icon, um, also ocean activist and just really amazing young woman who I had followed since I was like basically 16 years old. We're the same age. Um, and so she was there. And when I first walked into the room and I met her, she kind of, I smiled at her and she gave me kind of like a cold look that was kind of just like, okay, you know, stay away from me. So that broke, that was very like upsetting, but also in line with a lot of my other experiences with women up to that point. Um, but the thing that happened on the last day is that we, we talked about it because that whole week we were just like opposite magnets. Like if I was in a room and she came in, she would sit as far away from me as possible. If, if I wasn't, if she was in a room and I came in, she would literally leave. And I was seeing this happen. Like, what did I do? You know, did, did I do something wrong? Um, and at the end of it, she said, you know, I just, I, I just want to say that I'm sorry. The day that I first saw you, you know, it brought up a lot of insecurities for me. And this is something I struggle with, with being judged because everybody knows who she is. And, um, we just have this beautiful moment of connecting as just women, um, and realizing like we create all of these barriers with each other, but the moment we dissolve them, it's just, it's so beautiful. So that was that. And then we exchanged numbers. I texted her a few times, didn't hear for her from her for about a year. Then I came back to Bali again and was hired as a copywriter to write for this website, um, this company that was doing websites. Um, like websites for different clients. And she was the second project that I got. And so I started writing, I started writing her content. She had no idea that like I knew her and that I was the one doing this. And basically at the time she had started a workout platform where she was releasing um, workout videos. And I started seeing like so much potential. I was like, we should make this mental health and we can, you know, include these people and we can have this group chat and that group chat. And so I started pitching a lot of these ideas to my boss at the company that was overseeing me working for her. And then eventually he was like, Hey, I think we want to hire you just to work with Alexis, like officially. So I ended up leaving the first company, moving into the second one. And then she and I, over the course of about six months, um, developed a very close like work and creative relationship together. And we just revamped the community and we added journaling and, um, live calls and we, just switched the focus from just body to mind and body. And yeah, so that's, that's what led me into that sort of community thing. And what's great is that she has, she has 14 million followers on Instagram. And I think another 5 million on Twitter and YouTube and all of that. So she's so passionate about creating community for young women as well, which is what I needed at the time. Like when I first started working for her, I still was struggling with low self-confidence. I hadn't found a community yet. I hadn't had this experience of being accepted by women or like being wanted by, by other women. And so she sort of gave me that. And then together we like co-created something new that is very much representative of how she and I actually first bonded. So it's been the most rewarding and beautiful journey. And I, I love it because I get to connect with people from all over the world. I lead journaling, which is my passion since I was seven. I get to connect with, um, we do 30 day transformations every month. And so we bring on other guides who are, you know, authors and other influencers, actresses. And it's all just about empowering women through sharing our stories and, you know, being able to ask the questions that you're afraid to ask. And it is overwhelming. I mean, I would love to invite you to join a live call, Yelka, actually, if you would like to come to experience the love. Yeah, um, yeah. I would. I yeah, would. It's I would love that. Beautiful. I would love that. Yeah, we have about uh, 
yeah, we have just about 3,000 members now from, I think, 70 countries all over the world. So it's very international. Wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. Oh, my goodness. Um, this has just been so, you know, there were so many hard parts in, in your story and you telling it. I could tell, you know, like there were points and, and you're telling, you know, just through your eyes. But I kept thinking about um, this other guest I had, um, Warkia, and one thing she says, you know, um, that I love is so beautiful. She says, I'm telling you this story because I never have to relive that moment again. And, and I think that's so powerful. You know, all of us have that moment where we, we are stuck in it, you know, like that it's so painful, you know, that's like, we, we can't even talk about it because we're still, we're still living it right. To get to a point where we're not necessarily living it anymore. You're living beyond it, you know, um, that it's the after. Um, and so I'm so grateful. I don't know where you are in that, but I, I can only assume by you telling this story, you're, you're in the after, you know, and I hope that your story inspires other people to, to get to the after and the communities that you're building around the world is helping people get to the after or never get to that point in that particular moment of what you've experienced. So, so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, <laughs> oh, thank you so much. And, and I wanted to say that it's interesting. I, I was just reflecting on what you just said. I think with this particular experience, I am in the after. You know, I do have one other experience that I, I don't feel fully ready to fully talk about yet, but it actually was um, my first experience with, with trauma and violence before I met my ex. And it's still something that I'm working through. And so I just wanted to point out that it's beautiful to work, make progress in any part of your journey. Like me reaching this point with this one experience is helping me understand that I have enough strength and it will be okay when I choose to process the next one. Um, and so I just want to say thank you for saying it that way. And also something I spend a lot of time thinking about is that the, like the secrets that you have about yourself, that you are afraid of other people finding out about because you're worried what they'll think of you or if they'll believe you, those are, those are the parts of yourself that I think are have the most potential to be beautiful about you. That's sort of what I'm learning. Like they're, they're going to guide what you do in your life and they're going to allow you to, to be more loving and kind and also receive more love and kindness. And my turning point was when I finally was able to tell someone, you know, every little thing that had happened and see how they were all connected. And so, yeah, I just wanted to share that if anybody's struggling with um, thinking that there's something that they really can't tell someone, it, it's okay to tell someone and it will probably be a huge gift to yourself one day if you're able to get to that point where you can. So a new thing I want to try on the podcast is this idea of self-knowledge. So there's a word in my, um, I don't even want to say native tongue, but my familial tongue, because um, I don't speak it. It's in Kronko. It's a, a dialect of Manding. And it means it's, the word is nylon and it means self-knowledge, right? And I think so much of what the show is about is about knowing yourself, right? Through your story, by telling your story, you get to know yourself. Um, so I'm curious to know what practices you do to know yourself, to connect with yourself. 
Um, I have a lot of them just over the years of doing therapy and therapy, by the way, is a great way to start that like self-knowledge journey, like with somebody helping you. Um, but I feel like I'm, I'm at this point now where I kind of have my own tool belt. And so one thing that I am constantly doing with myself is this thing called a one word check-in. So throughout my day, and I do this at the beginning, I do it. If I notice any big shift in my mood, I do it at the end of my day. I did it before our call. I just did it, you know, on my own just now. Um, and so I'll just like take a seat. I'll close my eyes and I'll just take a deep breath. And then I just ask myself, how am I feeling in one word right now? And I just allow that one word to come into my mind. And depending on the quality of the word, whether it's like a feel good word or maybe like a more stressed out word or negative word, I try to then make like an action plan forward. Like if it's a really good word, like right now I'm feeling inspired. And so I'm thinking like, why am I feeling inspired? It's because I'm talking to you about, you know, a stories and this beautiful, you know, term of self-knowledge. And I really allow myself to like sit in that moment of inspiration and like really soak it in and fully feel it. And vice versa, before this call, I was feeling anxious. And so I was sort of doing some affirmations, like everything's going to go well, you know, Yelp is amazing. You will say the right things. It's going to be okay. And that helps me before we started to, instead of coming from a place of anxiety, just come from a place of curiosity instead. So these one word, these one word check-ins can help you create opportunities for celebration and like a chance to step in and help yourself and, you know, through self-knowledge, give yourself what you need because we can always give ourselves what we need and tell ourselves what we need. It's just a matter of building that awareness of when we need to step yeah, in. I love that. I, I, I love that so much. And I also, um, therapy has been part of my journey. Therapy has been the inspiration um, for creating this platform, right? Being able to tell my story. And I still remember the very moment I was in a session with my therapist. I've been in therapy now for over five years, like it's going oh. on six years. I was Congrats. Six, yeah, Woo. like going on six years. And thank you, thank you. It's it's the best gift I've ever given myself and the best investment I've ever given to, to myself. And I know that it's not, it could be more accessible. It's available, but it's not accessible, right? Because there's costs and all kinds of things and finding the right person for yourself. So that's, that's something I want to touch on the show at another point in time. But I still remember the moment I was telling her about my um, the, the, the situation that led me to therapy. And after I finished talking, she was like, what if you told yourself a different story? And it clicked, you know, for me, because it's like we, it's stories, obviously we need, like I, I had said before, it's like, you have to be able to tell the truth to yourself. But once you do that, what's the other side of the story you can tell, right? How can you reframe that to, to, to move forward, right? And so that has helped me in truly understanding myself and unpacking things that you, you didn't even think, that I didn't even feel as if like had an impact in, on me at, and, at all, but they did, you know? So that's beautiful, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna definitely take that practice as well and begin to do those self-check-in, those one-word check-ins, because I think it's beautiful. I can't thank you enough for this just beautiful sharing um and seriously it's just you're an incredible teller of stories and um I look forward to reading you know I I know that 
there's something there. There's something there. And just your level of creativity. And it's just so inspiring that you are continuing to give, give yourself and giving also. Um, when we give, we also heal. We also get something in return. So I want to just wish you all the best on that journey. And I'm so excited to see what's to come with warriors. We are warriors and and more, you know, I, I know that this is just the beginning of something great <laughs> for you. Thank you so much for saying that. I, I hope so. I, I feel that as well. I think like a lot of people around the world, we're in this moment now of like new things are going to be created and I have a lot of hope. Yeah. yeah. Hope is important to have. Hope is important to have. Um, it is very important to have. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful for this. Hey, y'all. Thank you for tuning in. Please remember to subscribe, leave a review and share the episode. Be sure to also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Turning Point Diaries. Until next time. Exile Dynamics featuring more box.